Hey everybody, this is Mike Wardrop from Encounter Church Adelaide, and thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast, you can have an encounter with Jesus that will change your life. And now get ready for an inspiring message from our preaching team. We're going to talk about prayer. Okay. And we're going to spend five weeks doing that because it is somewhat mysterious. And I think we need to unpack it to understand it, to get our heads around, like, well, really, what do we mean? What are we even talking about when we talk about prayer? So for me, I grew up in a sort of a nominally Christian home. And my mother went to church and and took me along with her, but it wasn't a place where I uh, knew Jesus for my own. Uh, It wasn't later on when I was a teenager, I walked away from it, not because I was rejecting Jesus, just because I'd never been sort of asked to accept him in the first place. And I remember all through my childhood, all through my teenage years, my mum, bless her, would just say one thing again and again, you know, you can just pray to God whenever you need to. And it became one of those things that when I was a child, it was very comforting. When I was a teenager, it was very annoying. And when I was a young adult, it was actually really powerful. And mum would just say it again and again. You can pray to God whenever you need to. And a few years back, I stopped and I spoke to mum and I said, you know, that genuinely changed my life. And she's like, I don't remember saying that. Like, great, thank you. Really powerful. Thank you, mother, for impacting my life in that way. But prayer moves people. So for me in my life, I have had prayer move me in multiple ways. I remember living in Japan when I was a young adult and uh, I was over there and I was trying to work out what to do about my girlfriend. She was back in Australia. Was I going to come back and propose and get married? Was, where, where were we at with it all? I thought that was where it was going, but I was just stressing out about it. So I remember praying and praying and going, God, I just, I just want some clarity. You tell me what to do. Tell me what I should be doing in this. And I remember distinctly, I was in a Japanese supermarket called Itayokido, and it was famous for having all the salespeople would say, can I help you? But they would never face you or look at you. So they would have their backs to you. They'd be working like the meat counter, and then they would cry, Ereshamasen, which is like, can I help you in Japanese? And you could be right next to them, and they just wouldn't look at you. They would yell at the same volume. It didn't matter. So that's the kind of volume I needed to hit me in that Japanese supermarket. And so out of nowhere, out of left field, God hits me. And he's like, yes, of course you should marry her. Don't be an idiot. He didn't say you're not going to do any better than this, but he would have. He should have. He was right. That was one moment where God spoke to me powerfully. I've had other moments where I've been researching sermons and, and, or, or, or preparing for a camp and just been seeking God's face and just going, God, tell me what you want me to speak on. And I'm just asking regularly, and God will say powerfully, boom, I want you to speak on this. It's like, jeepers, okay. I didn't expect such a a powerful response for a fairly simple moment. I've I've had other moments where I've been praying for people, including some people in this room, and I've spoken what I thought was a word from God for them, and I thought it was ridiculous. I thought it made no sense at all. And they start crying. They're like, you don't know what that means to me. And like, you're right. I literally don't know what that means to you. But that's the power of God in prayer. I remember praying at, at my old church once where I was previously in ministry. We're just finishing up for the day. We're just about to go outside. I was definitely thinking about lunch, right? Morning service. I'm thinking about lunch. I'm on my way out and a friend says, oh, could you pray for me? I'm like, yeah, definitely. Yep, because I'm a pastor and I have to say that. Okay, yep. Um, yeah, dear God, yep, just do your thing and, and do the healing 
thing um, and roast lamb and uh, in Jesus' name, amen. And very focused, deeply focused prayer. And I left and did not give it a second thought. And I came back and, and a week later, um, uh, I was there and I was just chatting to some people and my friend goes, oh, hey, thanks for your prayer. Yeah, my back completely healed. I'm like, sorry, what, pr- what prayer was that? And she's like, you prayed for me just before you left and God healed me instantly. Uh, yeah, of course he did. Yep, that's what God does. He heals. I wasn't even expecting God to heal her. God moved in power and healed her. I say this to say that God can do anything in prayer. God has used me in incredible ways for prayer. And I say this not to brag, but to confess, I don't really get prayer. I struggle with it. God has wrung me out like a wet rag this week trying to get my head around it and get my spirit aligned with his about how to pray and pray earnestly and pray with integrity and authenticity and in a way that reflects God's heart. I have had stuff happen through me and I still don't really get it. That's either going to be an incredible comfort or an incredible sense of fear for people here this, this evening. Because of course there's, there's those stories and then there's the other stories. There's the stories where I prayed for friends like, God, they need a job. We need breakthrough and nothing's happened. Or God, I I want you to repair this marriage. I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm counseling them. Like I'm not just praying, I'm working alongside them. Nothing happens. God, I need you to break through in healing now. My friend is struggling. They're suffering. They're crying out to you. They're a believer, Lord. They want nothing more than be healed. And nothing happens. See, there's both stories, isn't there? There's stories on either side, and part of this is what makes prayer such a tension for the believer. See, for me, give me a Bible and a journal, and I will Bible journal every day and love it. And ask me to pray by myself for 15 minutes a day, by myself in my room, and I will struggle. Because there's just something about the nature of prayer that is so mysterious for people. But people keep praying. People keep praying. It's tough to find Australian stats about prayer. In America, it's estimated that 9 out of 10 people pray at least weekly. That is a big number, right? Like, they're not all Christians. They're not, they're not all Muslims. Some of these people are just people that are praying. Their prayers might go to the universe or to, you know, the biggest dog in their street. I don't know. But they're praying to something, something, there are nine out of 10 people praying weekly. The Guardian did a survey in England and they said this, uh, this is a quote from the Guardian, among the non-religious, this is just the non-religious, personal crisis or tragedy is the most common reason for praying with one in four saying they pray to gain comfort or feel less lonely. One in four people that don't identify as religious in any way. Henry, 64, said he prays every night, kneeling by his bed, despite not being religious. All right, Henry, sure, mate. I worry about it quite a lot. Is it some kind of an insurance policy? Is it superstition or is it something more real? Asked if he believed in God, he said, I don't know, but I would describe myself at the skeptical end of agnosticism. I certainly wouldn't classify myself as religious. Henry, who requested anonymity, it's my favorite line in the article. (laughs) You'll get it later. Starts by silently reciting the Lord's Prayer. And then asks for his loved ones to be kept safe and well. Again, not religious. Sometimes I include other specific people or suffering groups. Then I have a fuzzy moment about me, not concrete thoughts. And I don't ask for specific things. He said he had no idea if God heard his prayers and said the act of praying did not make him feel better. 
I wonder why I don't stop doing it. Sometimes I feel it's a kind of hypocrisy. I reckon many of us have had similar experiences to Henry, where we're praying and praying and we're wondering, are we just shouting into the void? Are we just, are we just trying to hear the sound of our own voice? Are we trying to make ourselves feel better? This might not be what you expected to hear coming to church um, this evening. Tonight, though, as we get into some different types of prayer and why they matter, I just want to say this. No matter where you stand with prayer, either whether you feel skeptical or certain, or where you feel confident in prayer, whether you feel like, yep, I go for it in prayer frequently, or I am totally uncertain in prayer, I don't know what to do, I would just encourage you to do this. Pray tonight and pray with what you have. Pray with what you have. This is a line I stole from John Tyson, great pastor in New York, but you know, I'm sure he'd be fine with it. John, if you're listening, first of all, thank you. Second of all, I'm stealing your line. Pray what you have. You say, oh, I, I, don't, I can't do that intercessory prayer that you were praying for Jared and Lisa before. Great, don't do it. That sounds like it'd be horrible. Oh, I, I can't just pray for 15 minutes straight like you were saying. Okay, don't do it. Sounds like a nightmare. I could probably only pray for like 90 seconds. Do that. Do that. Pray what you've got. With what little faith you have, with what little confidence you have, with what certainty you have, pray with that. That's all. That's all I'm asking of you tonight. Is that all right? It's just as simple as we can make it. Pray what you've got. So let's get into the Word tonight. Philippians chapter 4. If you're following with us, open your Bibles. Chapter 4, verses 4 to 7. I love, love, love Philippians. Written by Paul, all about joy. And sure enough, it starts with this word, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, Present your request to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul's letter to the Philippians makes for helpful prayer here because it covers some key areas. Prayer is obviously saturated throughout the Scriptures in Old Testament and New. There's some slight variations to what it means through those. We're not going to get into that tonight. What I want to try and do tonight and through this series is to equip you. I don't want to just talk at you. I don't want you to feel like I'm yelling into the void. I don't want us to do that. I want us to have some tools that we can walk away with and go, I feel better equipped in my prayer life because of this. I understand what it means to pray, and I'm better at praying myself. Is that good? Can we work with that? It's good. All right. Let's stay mobile tonight. So in this, Paul starts by reminding us to rejoice in the Lord. It's an act of praise. And he then asks us to let our graciousness be known to others, which is an act of good character. And good character comes when we become more like God, and we become more like God when we confess our sins and repent and turn to Jesus. So it's an act of confession. He then reminds us to be thankful in the way we approach God before he finally gets to the part that we like, which is talking to God about what's important to us, our prayer requests. And the final part of this passage, though, is perhaps what we really want, what we're really looking for, and that is peace. Peace that only God can bring. Peace that makes our circumstances irrelevant. There is a consistent pattern to the way prayer is communicated in Scriptures. And next week, I'm going to unpack the Lord's Prayer a little bit and look at the way that Jesus prayed, not just in the Lord's Prayer, but in his own habits, because he had some particular habits that are really, really helpful for us. And we're Jesus people here at Encounter, so we love to know what Jesus did and follow that pattern. 
But today, though, I want to point to three important aspects of prayer we can't afford to miss. Number one is upward. Number two is inward. Number three is outward. Is that good? Number one is upward. Number two is inward. Number three, outward. Right. Awesome. Let's, and, and because, because each of them has a different level of familiarity for us, I'm going to spend more time on the thing I think we're worst at, and that is upward. We're going to start with praise. We're going to start with praise. This is what Eugene Peterson says about praise. He says, all prayer pursued far enough becomes praise. All prayer. Eventually, no matter what we're praying to God, eventually our hearts align and we begin to praise. I think prayer is, praise is the thing that we are worst at in prayer, largely because praise is only about God. And when we pray, largely, we prefer it to be about Mike. You know, like we prefer it to be about us. Praise, however, is purely about the character of God, but it's also kind of abstract. Like it's, it's not too often we stand there and, and praise. And I know when I go through praise, that's something I have to press into because it feels unfamiliar. But praise is important because it motivates all other kinds of prayer, all other kinds of prayer. The more we understand God's justice and holiness, the more we can confess our own brokenness seen in light of that justice and holiness. The more we see God's greatness and understand our dependence on God, the more we can go to Him with our prayer requests. Tim Keller suggests that because of this, awe-filled adoration of God corrects the other forms of prayer. So when we stuff it up with our other prayers, praise fixes it by reorienting ourselves to focus on God. This is what it sounds like. Psalm 8 verse 1 CSB. Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. Can you see that it's not about us in that? It's not even about what God has done. Like he's not, the psalmist isn't literally saying, you've thrown a blanket over the heavens and it's a lovely blanket. No, he's just saying, you and your very nature, God, are awesome. And I stand in awe of you. Isn't that interesting? I know you're not convinced yet, so I'm going to convince you. Here's three things that praise helps with in prayer. Number one. Praise causes our admiration. When we praise, we understand that God is both just and merciful, that God is holy and righteous, wise and loving, that God is big beyond our comprehension, that God is sovereign over all creation, that God is faithful and keeps His covenant with us forever. When we praise this way, our opinion does not shape God, but God's Word begins to shape us. Because we're not going to God saying, you're good for the things you have done here, but less good for the things you've done here. No, we're just coming to God and saying, you are good, full stop. You are majestic, full stop. The days when I'm not feeling it, you're great. The days when I am, you're great. That's why that song, Song of Ascent, is so powerful. The mountains of the valleys, it, it doesn't matter. God is equally faithful, equally good, equally holy, equally righteous, equally just, equally gracious, equally loving, no matter where we are. So we sit in that in an attitude of praise. Praise helps us admire that which deserves to be admired. It's like going and standing in front of a painting and seeing more and more of the detail in it as you watch it and look at it. And the more you look at it, the more you appreciate it and the more you recognize the wonder of what's being done there. Has anybody seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off? 
Okay, those who haven't got your hands up, go home this evening, immediately watch it. One of the great movies of all time. And there's a great scene where Cameron, one of the characters, he's sitting in the Chicago Modern Art Museum and he's just staring at this painting and the camera goes closer to the painting, closer to Cameron, closer, 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 closer. He gets lost in this portrait. It's incredible. And then he goes into a coma. Don't do that part. But it's the close attention, closer and closer attention, that teaches us more to admire about something. When, I, when I'm getting married to Jenny at 2006, yeah, a long time ago, I don't know why I'm looking at you, you, know, you never know the year we're married, but we got married in 2006 and I was fully in love with Jenny. It, it was the most wonderful day of our lives and I'm far more in love with her now than I was then because the more time I spend around her, the more I know her, the more I admire her, the more I get to know more details about her. And I orient myself in praise, Jared, take notes, mate. Where's your pen? Yeah. I orient myself in praise and admiration of, of the one that I love. And so when we admire God, when we praise God, it causes our admiration. And then the second point is this. Praise completes our enjoyment. Completes our enjoyment. Because admiration of God naturally overflows into enjoyment of God. Now, how do I know this? Because anytime you really admire something, you enjoy it. And, and I know you enjoy it because when you enjoy it, you tell people. Like, I tell you, you've got to see this Netflix show. It's unbelievable. Mate, you've got to come and check out this new cafe. It's incredible. I was talking to someone who shall remain nameless in this congregation this week, and they were like, you know what? If I could really spend time, I would, I would spend some time um, playing D&D. &D. And, and I was like, really? And they're like, yeah, D&D &D is coming back. So... I will take your word for that one, but I don't, I, don't under, I don't understand it. But I tell you, I got a little bit more excited because their enjoyment is contagious. And if you've ever heard someone come up to you and go, you have to watch this movie. And if you like that person, you're like, well, I've got to at least consider it now because their enjoyment is contagious. Their opinion is important. You know what I love because I will tell you. I will talk more about them. I will talk more about this church. I will talk more about my family. I will talk more about Oscar-nominated actors and actresses and best supporting actors and actresses and directors and films and the things that I'm passionate about. It doesn't matter, but it does matter. But it doesn't matter. But the things we are passionate about naturally overflow. And this, by the way, is where evangelism really comes from. When we are passionate about God, when we praise Him in all aspects of our lives, it doesn't come down to a conversation where we come down and go, son, can I tell you about Jesus? Have you ever met Him? You know, you don't need to do that because the conversation becomes part of you. It just becomes, people are like, hey, what have you been up to? And like, can I tell you about what's happening at church? Jesus keeps turning up and meeting people. And I was at the bus stop the other day and I had this conversation and your friend has just been transported into this world they don't even understand. And it's not because you're saying, I have strategically thought out how I'm going to engage you in a four-point plan to conversion. Aha, tricked you. Now you'll follow Jesus. No. You're just talking about what you love because you enjoy it and your enjoyment comes from admiration and your admiration comes from praise. That's what praise does to our spirits. Here's the big one, though, for what praise does to us. And God gave me this little, God, this little drop before, and I've, I've just got to hold on to this. So just bear with me. Praise reorients our identity. Reorients our identity. Augustine, the church father, said this. We praise that which we love. We praise that which we love. We seek more of what we love because it makes us feel happy. 
our greatest love causes our greatest happiness. We then begin to worship our greatest love because it causes our greatest happiness. And what we worship then becomes our identity. Now, you might be able to catch what the problem is here. Because if our heart's desire is ordered wrongly, we get in trouble. So this is what happens in prayer. We come to prayer, and the first thing we do is we say, God, God, you there? I don't know if you are. I'm saying it anyway. God, God, this is what I really want. This is my heart's desire. I've set my heart in this. God, I need it. You're not answering me. You're still not answering me. God, why aren't you answering me? This is my heart's desire. And then you begin to get angry at God for not giving you your heart's desire. But when you reorder your desires so that God himself is your heart's desire, what you begin to pray for is what is of God anyway. It's what is of God anyway. You need to reorient your desires so that your number one desire is simply God. Why? Because he is God. It's that simple. It can't be that simple. It's that simple. It's that simple. It takes a long time to grapple with, right? I'm not saying immediately this will, this will shift you. I hope it's starting to tick with some people. But we've got to reorder our identities. In Revelation, this is what Jesus challenges the Ephesian church with. He tells them they've forgotten what? Their first love. Their first love. Praise reminds us that God is our primary love and truly the cause of our ultimate happiness. So if we reorient our lives, friends, so that God his, himself our heart's desire... And that that desire causes admiration, which causes enjoyment, which causes happiness, then just simply praising God will give us our heart's desire, will give us happiness, and it won't matter where we are, what situation we're in. Come on, I'm preaching 10 times better than you're giving me here. It doesn't matter what situation you're in, where you're living, what you're going through, God will meet you, you will understand it more, you will be more content, you will have more peace, you will have more happiness, simply because you've reoriented your desire and said, my greatest desire is you. That's it. That's it. That's it. Augustine says it again this way, you have, this is real good, he's, he's better than me, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Now, much as I just light bullied you into cheering for me, this is confronting, right? It's a little bit confronting, even a little detached from your experience, I'm going to guess. Here's why. We live in a deeply narcissistic, individualistic society where we are the highest good. And it is very, very, very hard for us to reorder our desires so that we are actually not the highest good. Of course, the deep irony is that when we reorder our desires so that God's the highest good, we get more than we could ever dream of. But that's another story. John Tyson suggests that there is power in praise in an era of distraction because it refocuses us. It's the part of prayer that's like getting a wheel alignment for your car. So, so it sets you up so you'll begin more to be in God's will. If you've got those wheels off, it just takes you a little bit off, little by little. The further you go, the further away you're going. The power of praise in an era of distraction is that it aligns the wheels of our car to be straight at God. Is that good? This is the power of praise. So praise is crucial. Number two, this is the one I think we do a little bit better, but still not our best one. Looking inward is intimacy, is finding His grace. I want to offer four really quick steps to finding His grace. The first is this, remember God's forgiveness. 
Remember God's forgiveness. It was free yet costly. So expansive that nothing can now ever make us condemned again, but so costly that Jesus needed to die to secure it. Martin Luther, the great reformer, says this, repentance is the way we make progress in the Christian life. Now, that's funny because the word repentance comes from this Greek word that means to literally turn around. So in one sense, it feels like, aren't we going backwards? No, 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 because when we repent, we are heading back towards Jesus. And each time we're heading back towards Jesus, we're making progress in our lives. Luther gets it. Sinning is traveling backwards in a repentance world. When we forget grace's freeness, repentance becomes about keeping on God's good side, appeasing God. When we forget that it's a free gift from God. When we forget grace's cost, repentance becomes superficial. Confession doesn't lead to any change of heart, and it has to. But the point of both is to remember the forgiveness we have. Now, here's the next step. Number one, remember God's forgiveness. Number two, confess our sins. Confess our sins. This is such old-fashioned confronting language. Confessing sins. It's something that, like... Almost, even as I'm up here preaching as a pastor, I'm like, ah, can I find a better way to say that? What's a, what's a cooler way I can say that? You know, whatever. Something that's going to land better. But th- this is what it is. It's about confessing our sins. Sin kills our intimacy with God. And the purpose of prayer is intimacy with God. We must know our sin and name them. Christ has taken the debt of our sin on himself which means that God would never require another payment. Once we name our sin, that's, that's really it. We're naming it for our benefit, not for God's. God knows our sins. We name it to clear them, to get them out in the air. Jesus has already paid the debt. There is a debt. It was paid. End of story. You do not have to pay another debt. Confession is for you. Repentance is for you. God's already seen the debt paid. But you need confession to clear the way so that you can get back to God. And so do I. So this, this is from Tim Keller. This profound assurance and security transforms repentance from being a means of atoning for sin into a means of honoring God and realigning our lives with him. What does that mean? It means that confessing our sin is not about beating ourselves up to make us think we've got back in God's good books. And we do this. Even as professing Christians who go, I know, I'm saved by grace, but I, I'm not sure how saved. Like, I'm, I think I'm like seven out of ten saved by grace. I'm just going to really confess, like angry sob confess this week just to make sure. And God's like, just confession's enough. Just confess. It's all right. It's done. You need the confession. You need the confession. Keller says again this, if we know we are loved and accepted in spite of our sins, that makes it far easier to admit our flaws and faults. Here's point number three. Now, this is going to seem the same, but it's different. Forsake our sins or reject our sin. Point two, confess our sin. Point three, reject our sin. Why am I making them different? Have you ever done that thing where you come and you say, God, I've stuffed up again. And um, I just want to say it, and that's it. Cool. All right. Grace, I'm on with my life. And then it happens again. You're like, ah, okay. Yep, God, I'm here again because I know it's the right thing to do. I need to confess it. I'm confessing my sin. I, I'm, yep, I'm really sorry. Not going to do it again this time. Um, pinky swear. All right, come on. Let's get on with it. Then it happens again. You're like, ah, 
This is because sometimes what we do is we'll, we'll say things with our mouth, but our heart doesn't change. We actually aren't taking a posture of change. We're taking a posture of doing the things we think we are meant to do, which is a spirit of legalism. What we actually need to do is become so internally grieved and appalled by our own sin that we desire nothing more than to turn away from it, to tear it away and reach the heart of God instead. It's going to come back to how we see our own sin. And in a highly individualistic, narcissistic society where we're told, you do you, that's hard. That's really hard. We have to, as Jesus said, die to ourselves. Die to ourselves. Die to our old life. Die to our old person. Live as a new life. I've got to keep moving. Uh, Keller says this. He's, he's real good. You should read his book. He's very good. Thank you, Brant. True confession and repentance begins when blame shifting ends. Real repentance also begins where self-pity ends and we start to turn from our sin, not out of self-interest so that we avoid consequences, but sheerly out of love for God. That's the problem. Sometimes we confess our sins because we go, I'm old enough and wise enough to know that if I tell you the truth, I'm more likely to get away from this with a smaller punishment. And that's what we're actually doing it for. That is legalism, friends. With God, there is no more punishment when we confess our sin. We are holding on to Christ and that's all. But we've got to hold on to Christ, not to our fear of some kind of punishment. Anyway, we've got to keep going. Receive God's forgiveness and walk in it is the fourth and final step. Receive God's forgiveness. So we remember God's forgiveness. We confess our sin. We reject our sin and we receive God's forgiveness and walk in it. If praise is where we rediscover our happiness, repentance and confession is where we rediscover our peace. It's where we feel the peace of God. Peace between God and man as at least one Christmas carol that I can't remember says. Confession, by the way, if you've never done it before, it's also extremely liberating. If you have done it before, you know exactly what I mean. You take this burden off yourself and share it with somebody else. This is why it's been such a mainstay of so many religious traditions for so many years. Confession is an important part of the Christian life. Frees you from trying to hide your brokenness and helps you identify other areas of brokenness. Now, that sounds bad, but it's not to burden you, but to heal you to restore you into wholeness. All right, last one. We ready for it? We're definitely ready for it. Let's keep going. Number three, looking outward, which is struggle, asking for help. This is the bit we are very familiar with, the, oh, my gosh, the brakes aren't working. God, you know, that kind of prayer. We're very familiar with asking for help. I definitely didn't study for this exam, and it's tomorrow, but I want to pass. Can that be enough, please? God, you know, we are very Familiar with that prayer. Very familiar. Some nervous laughter from uni students in the audience. <laughs> I don't do that. Yes, you do. When we ask for help, we're lifting our desires to God with a view to His wisdom coming down. Now, that's the difference. We're not just throwing our desires out there and going, I want a new bike. Come on. It's, it's about going, okay, God, what does your wisdom say about what's best for my life? What does your wisdom say? We have external prayers, of course, where God affects the circumstances of history. We intercede on behalf of others. We pray over our nation, our city, our world. And then we have internal prayers where God's working on our inward parts, praying for God to change us from the inside out. Healings and miracles, the desires of our heart. 
And God does care about these. But we've just got to go back to what I said before. We need to reorder them by putting praise first. God himself is the desire of our hearts. And that then affects the requests we bring. And when when we go through a process of prayer, friends, we put praise at the top. It changes how we confess. Because if God is good and righteous and holy and loving, he is both more terrifying than we can imagine and more merciful and gracious than we can ever believe all together. And so we come with this incredible thankfulness. And then when we go through that confession and we think of the things we need to thank God for, it becomes a longer list because God is so good. And then when we go through this process of thanksgiving and we come finally to this, to our struggle, to our supplication, to our prayer request, the things we ask for are much more aligned with God's heart because the rubbish, foolish prayers of our heart have been burned away. And we're left with prayer requests that really, really matter. So there's three processes in here. We're asking. We start with asking. Simple, ordinary prayers for our own needs and those of others. If, if this is the simple place where you're at in your prayer life, and you go, I, I've read things like ask and you'll receive, knock on the door, will be open, all that stuff. I've, I've, I've read it, but I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm uncomfortable. It's all right. Just ask. Now, I would ask you to do something a little bit counterintuitive. If you feel like you're not good with prayer, Ask if you can pray for somebody. Now, I know, I know, I hear you. Ten introverts just died. They didn't leave the room because they don't want to be noticed. But they died on the inside. But the reason I'm telling you this is because when you pray for somebody else, there's, there's a kind of courage that comes in you. Say, oh, somebody else needs my prayer right now. And that helps us to lift up and step up into a space where like, you know what? Yeah, I will pray for you. And it actually, it might even become harder if they go, how can I pray for you? And you're like, uh, 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 I don't know. That, that part might be harder. But when you pray for someone else, there is a kind of courage that comes out of that. It is really powerful. If you are struggling with simple prayer, I'd encourage you, find someone you can trust. Ask if you can pray for them. Give it a go. Give it a go. Uh, bring the requests that are filling your mind to God here. There's a second one is complaining. Asking and complaining. This is not a joke. You can complain to God. There is stuff happening in your life and on the earth that is worth complaining to God. There is also stuff you're complaining to God about that is a total waste of your time and his. And you probably know what that is if you really stop and and get down to it. It's probably the stuff that you're mad about because of the disordered desires thing. And if you put your heart's desire on God, it'll be less of a problem. But there is stuff where you go, God, there is stuff going on across the planet I just don't understand why now why is a good question a better question is will you a better question is God I'm knocking again I'm knocking again I'm asking again there's a story that Jesus tells where he tells a parable of a judge who a widow is knocking and knocking and knocking and knocking his door for justice now in this parable that Jesus tells the unjust judge is God Jesus is so desperate for us to understand the power of persistent prayer that he compares his own heavenly father, the flawless divine creator, the king of majesty to an unjust judge in the sense that he's saying, look, if an unjust judge is going to give in to someone just nagging them, how much does your loving father who loves you more than you can imagine, more than you can even conceive, how much is he going to give you with? It's incredible. We can bring our complaints to God. There are laments throughout the Scripture. Proud biblical tradition. Jeremiah, Job, boy, Job, Moses, 
David, Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a cry of lament, but it's genuine. It's genuine. Bring the things that are wrenching your heart to God. They matter. And the final one is this, waiting, waiting. We pray confident that God will hear us, but patient with God's timing. We bring ourselves into the presence of God, like I just said, again and again and again and again. And it gets exhausting and again, but we keep knocking and again and again and again. I remember, this was very important for 20-year-old Mike, the amount of times that I must have said to God, between the ages of like 18 and 21, like, God, just find me that girl, that special someone. I just see this, all these jerk guys getting girlfriends and someone as sensitive and special as me isn't. It's like, yeah. and I just imagine, you know, God's dry reaching up there. But it's like, oh. sorry, just, I, no, I'm listening. And there's about four years of this. Before I was a Christian, then I become a Christian. Like, God, why? Look, I, I would just treat them so well. And God's like, you are so selfish. You are so self-absorbed. Now, in his kindness, he didn't communicate it that way. It was just like, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And it came to a point where eventually, as I'm beginning to praise God more and step into my faith and go, you know, the most important thing to me in my life is that I'm following Jesus. And as I started saying this more and again, more and more, I began to walk in it. I began to believe it. I began to admire God. I began to enjoy God. My life begins to flow out of that. And I get to the point where I'm like, you know what? It's all right. I don't care. Honestly, either way, God, you do what you want to do, but I'm here for the right either way. And God's like, okay, now it's time. Now you're ready. Almost immediately, I meet my wife. There's four years in that. Now, at the time, that felt like forever. And there are some of you in this room, and you are living that story right now. No, don't put your hand up. But you're living that story right now. And I just want to let you know it's okay. It's okay. God is not despising your prayers. He's not forgetting you. This stuff matters. Just reorient your desires so that your praise is on God first. So part of our problem with prayer, though, friends, is that we kind of want God to serve as like a cosmic ATM or a divine ambulance driver or a genie that grants infinity wishes, don't we? But we know that when that happens, God's no longer God. He's a genie. He's a, we are God in that case. We have to reorient our desire, the desires of our heart by praising God for who God is. Now, this might be very difficult for some of us. Um, and so I, I just want to offer a couple of suggestions that might help. Everyone in this room is a theologian. You, me, Francis up the back, everyone is a theologian because we all consider God. We all think about what that means for us. That's why you're here today. It's no accident. Something has been going on. You've been thinking about God. You've been having spiritual experiences. People have been talking to you. And, and you've got these pre-existing thoughts and beliefs about who God is and what God does. And of course you do. We all do. Prayer is where theology turns into experience. Prayer is where we say, God, I just want to know you more. I just want to know you more. I just want more of you. And, and as we do that, and we, and we commit ourselves to praising and saying, God, how majestic is your name in all the earth? 
you who covered the heavens with a starry sky, you who call us by name, how glorious you are. We say these praises in faith and our theology begins to change because God is not dependent on our theology. Our theology is meant to be dependent on God. The way we think and understand about God is meant to be driven and shaped by who God is, not by the current narrow window of experience we have of God. That's very challenging to us. But here's something that might be a bit more encouraging and less challenging, and that is this. The purpose of all this, because that's the title of my message tonight, praying on purpose. The purpose of all this is love. That's it. The purpose of this is deeper intimacy with the God who made you and shaped you and called you by name and says you're my child. The purpose of this is love. Now that's obviously a lot more encouraging. And when we pray on purpose, we're praying with what we've got. Praying with the smallest bit of your faith. Praying so that we might have an encounter with Jesus that will change our lives. When we pray on purpose, we pursue an encounter with God and we begin to align our hearts with God's heart. Your faith comes alive. Your heart beats like God's heart. And even though there are millions of ways to communicate with God, the simplest way is to start by just pray what you've got. The smallest bit of faith, fine, pray it on purpose. The smallest bit of understanding, fine, pray it on purpose. You're confused about what you even need, don't worry. Just blurt it out because the Holy Spirit is interceding on our behalf. Speaking to God the Father, saying, hey, your kids are right here. They're talking to you. They're talking to baby talk right now. But the Father understands. The Father understands and He hears and He answers. This is important. He answers. Sometimes His answer is no. Sometimes His answer is wait. And sometimes His answer is yes. But we don't find out His answers until we ask. This is the purpose of prayer. So we're going to finish, and that means it's time to pray because there's no point doing a whole series on prayer unless we begin to pray. And I know it's been a little long and a little meaty this afternoon, but it's important to get our heads around the why of this before we start getting some practical applications. So, so we're going to sing a song called Song of Ascents, the song that we sung earlier. Now, a song of ascent is a type of psalm. There are 15 of them. They're all in a row, Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. And the reason they're called songs of ascent is because they think that they were written by a bunch of different authors in, ter- in, in times of going up to Jerusalem, the holy city, in order to go there for a festival or an event, to go to the temple and worship. And people would write these psalms, these holy songs, pouring out their hearts before God. Now, why is this important? Why is this important? Because when people went to the temple, just like all of you when you came to church, they were feeling different ways. Some of them are exhausted. Some of them are frustrated. Some of them are pumped. They're really excited. Some of them are dubious. Some of them are skeptical. You never know. What do we see in the songs of ascent? Psalm 120 expresses rescue from distress. I need your help. Psalm 123 is begging for God's favor. Please, God, bless me. Bless me. Bless me. Psalm 130 is a cry for attentiveness. Are you even listening? Where are you in my life? And Psalm 134 is a song of pure praise. You are glorious. 
The songs of ascent are everywhere. They're in the mountains, they're in the valleys, which means wherever you are, you are in the right place to begin a conversation with God now, tonight. Now is the best time to start that conversation. Psalm 121, maybe the most well-known of all the songs of ascent, starts out with this simple and beautiful line, I lift my eyes toward the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. We don't even know what this guy is struggling with, but we know where he's trusting. You hear that? We don't know what he's struggling with. We know where he's trusting. Friends, to pray on purpose, you could actually pretty much forget everything I just said. Trust in God and start talking. Pray what you've got. Pray on purpose. Thanks so much for listening. We'd love to hear from you. For more information and resources, please check out our website, encounteradelaide.com.au. And don't forget to leave us a rating and review on your podcast provider. Have an amazing day. God bless.